to Art Witch, the podcast where creativity, magic, and healing align for personal and collective liberation. I'm your host, Zanetta, and welcome. Art Witch aims to provide resources for creative empowerment, helping folks make and share their art and also find their authentic expression. In this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of artists, witches, and healers, as well as experts in various art industries and related fields, all with the intention of helping folks share their art and their unique magic with the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Art Witch. I'm your host, Zanetta, and it's such a treat to be with you all today. I have been kind of absent from the podcast just for the last lunar cycle. Truthfully, the eclipse season really kicked my ass. (laughs) It was so, so rough. So many things came through, and I just barely hung on. But I survived. As I imagine most of us did, we were trying our best and things probably got a little messy. So before I get into today's conversation and the full episode, I just want to check in with you. How are you doing? How was eclipse season? How was that full moon in Scorpio for you? How has it been since that new moon in Taurus on April 30th? Inquiring minds want to know. (laughs) I found this cycle to be intense, very, very intense, and yet very clarifying, very helpful. Um, I can't paint it all as, you know, this really destructive situation because in large part, the things that were getting cleared and the things that came up needed to come up. And I think that's where that North node and South node for the moon is really, um, coming through. It's really shining through is like, you know, what are those pathways to, um, to our work, to our highest selves, to the things that we care about most, uh, you know, insert anything that feels sacred to you there. But um, what's going to clear the way for all of that for you to come through? And I found for myself that there was a lot that needed to be cleared. Um, Really big themes around taking care of myself, prioritizing my self-care, very obvious things that we hear all the time and that I think a lot of us as witches really, really understand. But, um, you know, it was not in obvious ways that this stuff came up. A lot of it was like, you know, relationships, close friendships, um, you know, how people expect of us or, you know, how we feel expected of, like those kinds of things really, really came through in this last lunar cycle. And it was almost like a, an energetic audit of sorts. And I think that that energetic audit is still happening, truthfully, like 
I'm recording this, it's what, like May 24th. So the eclipse was like, you know, about a week ago. So it's still, you know, echoing, it's reverberating. There are ripples on the water that are still moving through. And I don't think that the full understanding of this cosmic moment has come through yet. And I'm okay with that. I think that's also some of the medicine of like having these big, big, heavy events come through is to say like, we don't necessarily one, hold all that information within our channel and access it all at once. Um, And it's not also necessary to access all that information in order to just um, be living and be moving through. I hope that as, you know, that lunar cycle and all that stuff's been coming through for you, that you're finding a way to work with it, that you're finding a way to see what surfaced and why it surfaced for you. Notice I'm not using like optimistic language necessarily because a lot of that stuff is just straight up painful and can be even traumatizing in its own right. But we go through these experiences, these hard, hard experiences, and they show us a lot. So I don't know what those lessons are for you or what that medicine of the eclipse season is for you. All I'm offering in this circle, in this podcast moment is space. Really, really connect with yourself and to give yourself extra tender, loving care as acknowledging how big of a moment that can be for some of us. Magic is real, right? Energy is real. Many of us, I think we move through the world um, with a lot of folks who don't really acknowledge that energy is real, that magic is real, and that's okay. But what it means is that we kind of can fall into that um, depending on the environment that we're in, right? And so as sensitive souls, like we're going around, we're feeling all sorts of energetic um, vibrations and then we're trying to kind of push ourselves to operate at the same pace as uh, other times where the, the cosmic energy or the general collective energy is not so rough. And that's really wild, you know. There are a ton of things kind of like coming up and it's understandable to move through that stuff differently than when there isn't a ton of stuff coming up. (laughs) So you don't go at the same speed. You don't take the same approach um, when these really, really heavy energies come through. Instead, you acknowledge them, right? And you work with them, not against them. And by working with them, it's usually an understanding that we're in connection. We're in relationship with these energies and they do impact us. And whether other people around us or not understand that, that's, you know, neither here nor there, but what it is for our personal experience. It's like, yeah, that really had an impact on me. And now I need to like do things accordingly. So 
I am holding it down here for any of you who are going through a lot, who are trying to modulate your pace to what's coming through. And please know that I'm with you in the solidarity of care and support. The podcast energy and the circle that we create by coming together and connecting on these topics, I think brings a certain energetic vibration that there are people all around the world listening to this that are like, I am in the full acknowledgement that energy and magic are real and that I can take care of myself accordingly and I can work with those energies and I can care for myself in the face of those energies. So that's just a little lunar check-in, but now I want to shift a little bit and get into some announcements. There are some really cool things that I'm excited to share with you all and I want to invite you into. The first one is that I am teaming up with my friend Eliza Swan, who you may have heard on the podcast in the second episode. We are teaming up to do a psychic tour of the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. I am so, so, so excited about this event. Connection with plants, communicating with plants, collaborating with plants with land is a huge part of my artistic practice. It's the foundation of everything that I do. And many of the projects that I have done have been as a result of connecting with tree spirits, nature spirits, uh, plant spirits. And so I am really, really excited to offer this. This is an in-person event at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden with my friend and They are an incredible psychic and intuitive artist. Um, Eliza Swan is just really, really a gift to our community and so, so much wisdom about energy, about the care and the tending of relationships and just how to develop like a loving psychic rapport with these energies and these entities is really, really powerful. And I think Eliza is just so amazing um, when it comes to sharing and teaching this information. So we are going to be offering this psychic tour on June 22nd, Wednesday. And this is a donation-based event. So please, please come through. Space is very limited, so you have to register ahead of time. I will leave the link to register down below. But if you are in the New York area and you want to come with us, connect with plants, share your um, experiences and community and a loving community, this is the spot. This is the time. This is going to happen 11 a.m. June 22nd, Wednesday. And the way it's going to work is you should register in the link down below. And you'll have to buy a ticket to the Brooklyn Botanical Garden for admission. And we'll all meet up there. And we're just going to go around. We're going to stroll through the gardens. We're going to go through some different meditation and listening exercises, some sonic exchange. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of my work with ritual and with plants. And yeah, it's just going to be super, super fun. 
The next announcement I have is that tarot readings are going to be opening up again. We're going to be doing another round of creative liberation readings. These readings are perfect if you are working on a project, if you are working on any kinds of questions through your creative career, your creative journey, if you are looking for unblocking or releasing any particular energies that are in your way around creating, this is a perfect reading for that. I think what I've noticed the most around these readings is that people develop a sense of recentering. Like they come back to themselves and what's important to them and how they're going to go and continue on their creative path. And so I feel like a lot of what these readings are is a really powerful ritual of being able to return to oneself. Um, I could never tell someone how to make art. It's your own personal process, but I think the container that the reading is and the process that we go through helps people come back to what matters most and to feel empowered to do the thing that they need to do for themselves. So if this feels like it resonates with you and you feel like you need this support in your creative journey, then Sign up for the early bird list and when that email goes out, you will have first notification on when readings are available. So without further ado, here is today's episode. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Art Witch Podcast. I am your host, Zanetta, and thank you so much for tuning in. Today I have an amazing guest, someone that I have been following their work for a while and feeling really sourced and nourished by their work especially in these times where it's hard to slow down or it's hard to find connection. I live in the city and often I feel like there's just a lot of ways that I get disconnected from what really is sacred and what matters to me. And that's usually nature. And this person's work has just been super helpful, especially in this last year, um, just reading their work and kind of getting a chance to meditate, contemplate, be with it. I'd like to welcome Sophie Strand to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming in, Sophie. Thanks so much for having me. I feel like it's it's well overdue. Sophie is an amazing neo-troubadour animist with a propensity to spin yarns that inevitably turn into love stories. I love, love, love that. Sophie, could you tell me a little bit about kind of your journey that brought you into this work of writing with the natural world? You know, I was raised in the woods. I mean, I was born in the city, but my parents moved upstate pretty early and I was and they were incredibly environmentally a- active, friends with pretty radical ecological um scientific thinkers. Um they write from inside and outside spiritual communities. Um And so I definitely had, I was in a compost heap of this thinking. And also I was raised with, you know, we rehabilitated wild animals. We had lots of animals growing up. So I definitely had the sense as I was being raised that everything was alive and bumptious and complicated and had its own goals and needs. Um, And I was raised by two writers who definitely, you know, read aloud to me when I was younger and showed me that stories weren't just fun. They were ways of staying alive, ways of understanding otherness, ways of connecting. 
Um, so this is definitely what I was grown out of, the soil I was grown out of. I, I definitely think I'm, I'm honoring my roots as, as an eco-feminist, as a neo-troubadour animist, as a storyteller. Yeah. Hmm. I love, love, love that. Would you share a little bit about where, like, the, the space place land that you grew up on Mm. like you know and and what you recall about it because I just feel like hearing about the soil hearing about you know this amazing environment that you were sourced in I'd love to hear a little bit about some of your memories and like maybe some connections that you remember or would like to share with us Mm. in this space well, I would like to honor that, you know, I was born in the city, so I understand where you're from. <laughs> and my, you know, my first three years were spent in the city. And I did experience pretty horrific trauma in the city and abuse. So all of my my land-based experiences are in certain a certain way have been a a balancing of of that, of that anthropocentric violent mm. kind of insane experience that I was um, initiated into this world through. So I, I would say that I live in the Hudson Valley on land that was and is still um, tended by the Muncie Lenape people. But I was raised on land that the Muncie Lenape did not think you should live on. <laughs> you know, that, that, that they said that this was a place they would come to bury their dead, but never stay the night. You would, you would mm. come into the shadow of Overlook Mountain in this area where, you know, the word Manitou is... Um, dispersed across america and it's used in, in as, as far as i understand it has multiple meanings um in in multiple different frameworks but the way it was used um by the mohicans and the muncie lenape around um the hudson river was it meant like ambiguous land energy that you like you know respectful of n- neither good nor bad and there was a lot right. of manitou around overlook mountain which is directly where my parents moved <laughs> Um, it's amazing. <laughs> the shadow of Overlook Mountain. So I would say growing up, I I was always encountering, you know, bobcats and raccoons. And my parents, my parents had a practice of we'd feed the hungry ghosts. My dad was a ex-Zen Buddhist monk and he had a lot of Zen Buddhist traditions. So a kind of ancestor practice was very important to us growing up. But our ancestors would be the raccoons and the possums that would show up to eat the food that we left out for the ancestors. So there was a very direct link between the animal world and the ancestral world for me. They all mm. felt very interconnected. Um, but I was also raised by cats, house cats. And I think, you know, that might seem like a tame thing to say, but I, I was very distrustful of human beings, especially adults. Um, given what I went through. And I think there was something about while, like, our cats were, they, they lived in the house, but they hunted and they went in and outside. And sometimes they would leave for weeks at a time. They're pretty wild. Mm-hmm. And there was something about them that felt very helpful. Like, they really showed me that how you could take care of yourself, how you could be set boundaries and be difficult and cranky, but also deeply loving and tender. Um, like, I feel like cats taught me a lot about relating in a way that felt healthier than the ways that I had um, seen. Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. What would you, what animal or um, land encounters constitute you? Do you feel? Mm. Well, when I was a child, I grew up really close to the San Bernardino mountains Mm. and 
there's a really specific area that my dad would take me hiking before school most mornings. So we would go to this, um, it was called Eaton Canyon for anyone who's listening and who knows California. Um, there's this Canyon and it's really, really amazing. There's like lots of, I don't know, scrub brush. And like, it's really like lots of like dry oaks and like coyotes and stuff like that. And it's just kind of a, an area where you can, it's not far from the city, obviously it's, it's close enough that you could like, you know, uh, drive up and and go walking or something like that but you definitely it's the foothills of like a pretty large mountain huh. so we would go there um pretty often and I just loved that time like with my dad and like playing like playing outside and like hanging out with the oaks and you know like I was kind of terrified of the squirrels it was it was a scene for sure but I always loved that place and then the other I guess the other thing is that I always drummed outside Mm. like my dad and I would bring our practice pads our drumming practice pads and we would go outside and just play for like hours and there's something about when you're um, in this trance state of repetitive rhythm that takes you into a different uh, connection with the elements and with, you know, the beings that surround you and the place and space spirit, you know, it's just totally, totally different. So I think on some level, the the connection that I have to like making art is is just like fundamentally with with like being outside and I just never put that together like when I was in conservatory or anything like that you know playing in concert halls and stuff like that but now I'm like oh of course of course I need to be outside and I need to like make things outside so yeah. And, and and then I was remembering that I used to go and play at the moon, like on most oh. nights, I would play my Casio and sing at the moon. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it was very, very page of cups. Yeah. <laughs> I, I appreciate you asking that, though, because it's really fun to just remember um, the childlike Uh, energy you know like the child self and how the child self has so much wisdom about how to connect to the earth yeah and and when and where and how it happens that like really gets outside of you know the linear thinking or like you know okay so now I do this and here's how I have a ritual with you know land spirits and here's how I do this and xyz but how the child self like just seems to understand intuitively like what you do wherever you are to summon Nietzsche the deed is everything (laughs) you Mm. know it's not you're always verbing like you always like are are in process and and, like flowing into something else Um, and then there's this moment I feel like in in your teenage years where you start to like observe yourself as subject in relationship with objects and then things start to get really tricky yeah Yeah, I love that verbing because I think also, you know, this podcast, we get a lot into artist process. We talk a lot about like how exactly does your 
um, magical or energetic understanding or your pro- your rituals around those things inform your actual art creation and your mm. practice and process. But I love that word verbing because I think it gets into the state of being and the state of being that you access when you're creating. It, it gets into, you know, like it's not necessarily um, – a formatted or form formulaic uh, process, but it's just a state that you are available to. Yeah. And I would love to hear a little bit about your creative process, especially since I feel like when I read your work that you're channeling such a deep relationship building and communion with, with the world and all beings. And I would love to hear about how you support your creative process or how you go about your creative process or how you get into those states and access verbing? Thank you. Well, it's a complicated answer. So I'm the child of writers who write for a living and I write for a living, which means I do a lot of different types of writing and that writing for me isn't a hobby. It's a life-sustaining process. So there's a lot of writing I've done for hire where you sit down and you do it. And you take your ego and you say, this is not about my ego. This is about making money. (laughs) So I do have a lot of different types of writing I've done in my life. And I think that different projects call on different types of musculature and different kinship webs. You know, I I think that for a long time, I ghost wrote children's books. And um, I would have to do them extraordinarily quickly and with extreme precision, not having any ego that you know I wasn't writing under my own name I wasn't supposed to emulate my own style I was supposed to emulate someone else's style and I also wasn't supposed to write in the way that I thought other people should write like I was supposed to write to connect to young kids as quickly and as easily as possible and I actually think that even though that was an extraordinarily formulaic money-based experience like I was doing it to support myself while I finished other projects it taught me something extraordinary about work and about ego which is that you know writing and storytelling is ultimately about connection it's you know it's only until very recently that we've ossified text into these written objects that are supposed to represent a singular author you know storytelling and art making the kind of art making I do is always relational it was oral it was interrogative it was about community responding to right relationship to land so I think for me it was a really good way of understanding that all storytelling is not about individuals, it's about relationship, and it's about communication. And realizing that the way you think is best to communicate may not actually be the way that you give medicine to someone else. Mm. And that you have to be adaptive and willing to really put yourself in someone else's shoes and think about how they learn and how they feel. Um, So weirdly enough, writing all of these young adult novels for hire under someone else's name was this incredible learning experience about my own craft, which I was very, you know, I was very academic about my craft. I've always written and I've experienced intense illness in my life. So writing has always been this survival mechanism of channeling anguish, trying to understand how alive the world is and how other people don't experience it as alive. It's always been a way I work through things. And so there's, there's an element of contraction and anguish and 
Yeah, it's channeling, but it's like Garcia Lorca's Duende. It's like dancing in the wound with like something that's neither good nor bad. Like this is a muse that is a goblin, not an angel. And it's it's amazing, but it's risky. Like art, art making is fundamentally risky for me. You're always risking your life when you're really doing it. The kind of creative work I'm doing now feels very risky, mm. which is I feel like... I'm really trying to communicate the things that I care about most as baldly and as directly as possible. And I'm always risking failing. And I, th I think that every time I put something out there, it's like, it feels like taking a nerve and like showing it. Um, so, but, but I think, I think if I don't, if I know that I'm not risking something, I know that I'm probably not risking being changed and not risking really actually creating a connection. Yeah. Can you speak on to how you develop a constructive relationship with risk taking? I, you know, that's something I'm really thinking about today, which is that I think that I've shared a lot this past year about stuff that I'd never shared about before in terms of my life. And it seems to have really connected with people who've been through similar experiences. And that feels validating, but I also feel really burnt out. So I'm trying to see, like, at what point you pull back. Like, how do you oscillate between connectivity sharing and then going into the necessary fallow part where you let yourself rot and isolate and, and see what sprouts out of the darkness? So mm. I think that risk-taking has to be modulated by, balanced by decay and by moments, not, not even of, of the opposite of risk-taking, not of safety, but of rot. Like you risk and you rot, you risk, you rot. Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. I feel like there's this constant stream of creation that we're um, being swept up in often. And like, there's a lot of wonderful stuff that comes from that. And it's how I found you, you know, it's like part of that. It's how people are probably finding this podcast right now. Yeah. And there's risk at certain points in pulling back. There's exactly. so much risk. Like I think people never talk about this, but the intense, I don't think they don't talk about it, but I think that it's, it's often like uh, codified through the lens of Instagram sharing or like yeah. social media sharing, but even in art creation or in times where it's like, yeah, I could channel, but should I like, <laughs> or, you know, um, there's a lot of risk. I think when you get to a certain point, sometimes with your work or your projects or your visibility out in the world, and then you have to say, this is the next level of risk. Actually, this is where the goalpost has shifted or, or that yeah. I'm expanding is in the ability to know and like secure myself and my space and my time and energy, um, relative to how much I've already fucking given. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. I mean, I think the thing that I'm experiencing is it's like a race that you're only racing with yourself. And it is like, like you, you up the ante, like you run faster and then everyone expects you to keep running faster. And then, so you run a little bit faster. So yeah, you're the only person who can decide that the race is done, <laughs> um, that you're ready to pull back. We're, we're so plugged into this idea of accumulation of, of progress, of linearity. And, and what does it mean to meander, to like follow a river? <laughs> what does it mean to widen, to, to trickle, to divide, um, 
Yeah, I'm trying to be more riverine in my thinking these days, but it's risky. Mm-hmm. It's risk, especially when people tell you that your worth is about accumulating followers, activity, always creating work, always giving. It's it's hard to turn around and to do the opposite. It seems like something yeah. you've thought about too. Um, I have, I I have. You know, folks have have you know asked me. You know, will you put out more podcast episodes? Will you do like you know, like readings or this or that. And, um, I, I run this really interesting thing and I don't know if you feel this with your, um, kind of the mediums that you work with and modalities that you work with, but I work with a lot of different mediums and I love them all. I've always been like that. I've ever since I was a child, I'm like the person who's like, yeah, I'm going to paint you this picture and I'm going to drum it for you. And I'm going to dance it for you. And I'm going to go and like, we're going to find some books on it. (laughs) Like we're going to do it all. (laughs) Like however we can, um, connect with information and communicate something, we're going to do it all. (laughs) And so I have a lot of things that I'm juggling and I always feel, um, an internal pressure to um, to have them all running at the same rate, have them all kind of uh, flowing in and, and kind of um, releasing like the same amount of work, the same amount of projects, like the same volume, essentially. I love that we're getting into to the water element even yeah. as we're talking about this because there is this like element of rate, flow, viscosity, yeah. like, you know, getting into, um, to the tension that comes with like the molecules and getting into like the cohesion and how we experience how, how work flows out of us and how it comes back to us and, and just all of that. And so, yeah, I really feel you, um, pretty deeply on, on our like kind of individual responsibility to like know that shit and and to and to be paying attention (laughs) to that yeah I mean it's hard it's it's there's no guidebook for it um and in fact like if you look for feedback the feedback is always going to be to keep going but if we look to ecosystems and we look to natural metaphors, we see that, you know, there are different flowers for different seasons. There's the animals that go dormant, animals that wake up, animals that like, you know, flower, f- mushrooms that only sporulate for a week out of the year. You know, it's I, I'm always trying to like look outside the human narrative, outside the cultural um, narrative, because they're pretty impoverished and deracinated. They have very little to do with keeping everybody alive. Yeah. In this last year, especially when things got so hairy, especially for performing artists, where it's yeah. like, you know, where your worth was sourced in, like, whether or not you performed in a space or not, and people watched you. Yeah. And then that was kind of, like, yanked away for the last couple of years. I remember, like, starting to read some of your work and being like, yes, I can conceptualize and understand my own artistic journey and my own process as being just as fucking sacred as any other um being um creature on this planet it's as long as i'm willing to go there and willing to be available to that medicine or that knowledge there's so much hardship right now and so much raw blistering pain but there's also a whole world that we've muted 
that is willing to offer us advice and humor and trickiness and love and tenderness. So there's both. There's always bothness. Like, you know, all emotions are mixed. All experiences are mixed. And so it's not about trying to avoid the pain, but it's about turning up the volume on all of the the, the concatenated multiplicity that we're, you know, strung together with. Yeah. And I think that that kind of gets into what is in our field? What is right here, right now? Like, you know, for the longest time, I thought, especially in making art, that I would have to go travel to like these really amazing um, wilderness spaces and and be like, you know, on this solo trip for like six months and like do this thing, kind of eat, pray, love it or something. I don't know. And And yet like the local, the local, the like immediate, the ring right outside or right beneath or right above, like right where you are and like what relationships are we not aware of? What are we not being present and available to? I feel like when I read your work, you've got something that you're queuing into with that, like in a really, really deep way. I would love to hear if you have any insights or recommendations for us as, as listeners around like building a relationship with your local, your immediate natural spaces and world. So I think the thing I want to complicate, and I want to complicate it from a kind of new materialist feminist perspective and also a disability justice perspective, which is that we've created this really false cut between us and nature, but the truth is that everything is nature. Our shit is nature, our pollution is nature, our violence is nature the plastic in your home is nature and that when we fetishize nature as always being outside as something that we can create boundaries around and preserve that there you know that's when we start to consider other things as not nature (laughs) and and it's those cuts that you know I was just reading something brilliant that said that do that dualisms are actually monisms, which is they have one one good thing and then one defective thing. So du- dualisms are really just like there's only one good thing and everything else is a defective version of it. So that's a really interesting perspective, which is when you have nature and non-nature, everything is like natural and beautiful or defective. And, you know, disabled people often fall into the defective part. Even though women are conflated with nature, they fall into the defective part. And so I think it's important, you know, as someone also, I think I would have probably traveled pretty widely and have been a pretty, like, wander, I'm a Sagittarius, I would have been a wanderlusty person had I not been confined to bed, confined to a small radius of life by serious illness. And I have known constraint in my life that has not been consensual, but has been profoundly instructive. And I think that quarantine for a lot of people has been and collective experience of that, which is when you're forced to stay in one place, what do you learn about that place? Like I always tell people, it's not about looking for the charismatic animal across the world to advocate for. It's like what being in a five mile radius of your house, do you just always notice Mm -hmm. (laughs) like that being, if you're noticing something, it's noticing you like it, there's, there's a vein that refluxes both ways. Um, like, Maybe it's a dandelion if you're in the city that just like persistently pops up. Maybe it's a smell of a waste treatment plant. Maybe you need to find out where that is. Is it has it been zoned in a place with lower income? Like where is that like 
that air blowing. Like, you know, we have all sorts of culpabilities. Nature can also be about complicity, thinking about the, where our waste goes. Um, so I oftentimes, you know, there are a lot of people I'm in relationship with who can't walk, who can't see, who can't leave bed. And so it's very hard for them to, you know, I have lots of advice, which is like, find a sit spot, walk where you are, find the names of all the beings in your area and summon them like a prayer, like a mantra. But also that's a very precious. The truth is that if you're confined to bed and you're confined to your body and to pain, you can just settle into your body and realize that you are a molecular surprise, a miracle. You know, your very body is ancestrally located in a, in bacterial legacies. Like your cells were the fusion of two simple prokaryotic bacteria. So if you can't leave bed, you can start to tap into that natural world through the ecosystem of your own body. So yeah, I just always want to offer that, you know, I think that a lot of very flashy environmentalism is for a kind of white person with enough disposable income to hop around to the next eco conference, take the right, the right Instagram photos. And the truth is what does activism and environmentalism look like if you literally can't leave bed? Like, <laughs> so yeah. that's the question I'm always asking. Yeah. Thank you. I asked that question too. I, and I love what you're sharing. I love that it's not outside of ourselves. I love that it's always, it's always, we are a part and that that idea that things are outside of ourselves is just still playing into that capitalist notion of chasing crap, basically. I do it. I mean, like God. <laughs> <laughs> it's just always like, can we, can we always be running after something that, that is outside of ourselves? Yeah. And it is, it's very painful to go through life consistently thinking that what is necessary and vital to your existence is something that is apart from you. Yeah. It's so bewildering and strange, but I think a lot about this from like being um, a multiracial, like queer person and thinking a lot about like when I often am out in the field recording sounds um, I'm usually the only person of color, like almost always. And people will, you know, from will have varying responses to me being out on the trail. And, you know, oh, lots of bros, lots of dudes being like, what are you doing? Like, that looks really like something, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know I just kind of um, trying to interrupt like my time, my process, I'm, you know, I, it's very strange to, to go out, to be in these, you know, my own kind of journey, my own time, my own process. And then to have like this, uh, othering, even in this place where I feel the, you know, Oh golly, like, oh, look at this tree. I'm so in love with this tree or like, you know, <laughs> like in this space of, of just being in love and yet also othered. That's such a great articulation of it, like in love and othered. And I think that's actually one of the things I've been tapping into lately is when I feel most weird and most exiled is usually when I think I'm like most in alignment with my ecosystem. <laughs> so I'm just trying to understand like the moments where like, like I remember there was this moment where I was having these experiences with this woodchuck in this park behind my home. 
And like, I would be like touching it and feeding it. And we were like developing a whole kind of language. And my neighbors who would come to the park would be looking at me like, who is this person? Like, and it's like those moments when you feel you risk looking really mad and really weird is like when you're most in love. Yeah. Mm. I love that distinction. But I'm also sorry because, yeah, like, God, you're just trying to, like, follow that artistic pulse, that, like, water that's moving through you. And there are people coming in being like, who are you? Yeah. And even, even, you know, like, the world of sound is so intensely white, like, hetero, cis, male dominated. Like, it's intense how pervasive that perspective is. And I think about how me just even being there and like listening there is such a huge like unraveling of a whole like narrative and perspective on like what is sound what is it that we're doing when we listen and so I feel really grateful too being in this complex space of like love and other and risk and and saying like, yeah, I, I, it is risky for me to be here. I mean, I often feel fear. Like when I go out and like camp by myself or like go out and go, you know, into the middle of nowhere and I don't know who will be there or who will find me. And I'm like, okay, I'm here. I'm, I'm doing it, you know? And I, I'm just going to try. I'm going to do it because I want to. But it's a really, really complicated feeling like to make make your authentic art. And I think it's something that like I wish was um, brought up more often because I, I know that in the years that I wasn't creating, I often conceptualized that when I was making my art, I would just be free and fancy and living my best life. And it would be so like flowing. Yeah. But it's it's actually like, I love what you said earlier in this conversation, the risk. There's so much risk involved. And it's like, you're just dancing the, you know, the dance macabre. You're like yeah. doing this, this tarantella almost where you're like moving faster and spiraling and like kind of surrendering to a complex experience of ecstasy and like creation and also fear. Yeah, I mean, I really like it's incredible that you go out and like camp alone and do that. It's I, that's a as a queer person, as a multiracial person, as as like anyone other than a white man doing that is risky. Like <laughs> profoundly risky. And I think about some of my heroes and the fact that their art like they took it to the edge of the cliff. Anna Mendieta, Teresa Hawkins Shaw, like these these people who I hold as my like secular saints are they took the risk that destroyed them so you're always you're always feeling your ancestors your artistic ancestors with you and saying like this is not safe (laughs) wow this is really not safe um but I actually have a question for you that I'm fascinated by which is what are some of the like white colonizer myths that live inside of um sound culture right now and studying sound and music (laughs) there are some really really big ones I think the biggest one that's come up recently I was in kind of like a a, I guess it was like an online container where like a bunch of sound artists and professors were gathering and talking about sound and sharing their works and it was my first time actually going to something like that 
And there were lots of projects on like um, ecology, acoustic ecology, um, lots of stuff that uh, is rooted from the works of like Arne Marie Schaefer and Bernie Krause, those really, really big um, dynamic figures in the world of acoustic ecology. But the question that kept resonating and ringing and started to move outside of my body as I was listening to these works and listening to people talk about it was consent. Mm. Um, not a single individual in the entire, um, uh, group had talked about their process and brought up the, the idea of asking permission of these beings to either record or to, um, or to use their work or to like, um, record in these spaces or to, there were so many layers, like tons of layers of, of where in the process there could have been an invitation to collaborate and that never was spoken the entire time. And, and I felt really nervous because it was my first time I was like, Oh, I'm, you know, new, like, (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I'm just Zanetta. Like I'm here. And then I kind of remembered a tarot reading that my friend gave me where she was like, you know, sometimes belonging is being disruptive, is being revolutionary. Yeah. And and she told me, she was like, you know, like, you can belong because you're there to fuck shit up. And, yeah. so, <laughs> and so I remember that in this moment of being in this space and I was like, I have to say it because it's like starting to move outside of yeah. my physical being when you have a question that's like here and no one can see this, but it's like around my face. <laughs> yeah. And um, and I had this question ringing so loudly. So I said, you know, I really enjoyed what I got to see today and I appreciate everyone sharing. I wonder if anyone would like to talk about like how consent plays into their um, process of, of recording out in the field. And especially when we're talking about performing with, um, other creatures sounds and like, especially endangered species or species that are in a critical threat space. Like, you know, it's just like, they're really struggling. And I was like, you know, where, where does consent come into your process? So this is like the big thing that I think right now is something that I think about, um, and that I hope is like somewhere, somewhere like rigging out and rippling into the universe. Cause it's, it's, um, I wonder what people think they're doing when they're listening. Like it's relationship building, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's it, what you seem to be interrupting is this like very extractive accumulation, this like one way experience where you're like going and getting rather than like opening up a conversational channel. Yeah. It, it, it seems like if you talk to any other indigenous culture, you know, they're going to ask permission before they do anything like, <laughs> and this what we don't ever ask permission of other people, places, experiences, relationships. Yeah. It's yeah. Like- I love that this is coming up in this conversation, especially when I think of like the lover's card. Yeah. And I think of how we're in the lover's year yeah. and just the idea that like you can have this dialogue, you can have this conversation. It doesn't need to be um, the, you know, a huge right or a huge thing necessarily every moment, but even just asking and I remember I, over the summer, I almost got bit by like a rattlesnake. (laughs) Yeah, I almost got bit by a rattlesnake. And a friend who's spent a lot of time studying and um, 
living in Zimbabwe and working with the Shona people, she was like, you know, the, the Shona folks actually believe that like, you have to be very careful, like when you go into anywhere, especially a space though, that is very like, um, I want to say there are more non-human kin than human kin. Yeah. (laughs) When you go into those spaces, like be cognizant of what you say and how you conduct yourself. Yeah. And, and she was like, you might have disrupted them. And I was like, yeah, I might have. Like I was, I was having a bad moment and I probably said some stuff that was like annoying. <laughs> Just, you know. But she was, she brought up a really good point, like how you conduct yourself in this space and how you conduct yourself around these beings. There's like lots of practices around the world, even in around the islands known as the Philippines. There are practices where you speak to the nature spirits and you say tabi tabi po like you'll say something like i'm here hello greetings you know that kind of thing i mean i feel it so there are experiences in my life where i've like consciously not asked for permission to enter certain places i've been like consciously like dumb to that and i got seriously injured so like and i could see it i was like yeah i really didn't like there's a mountain where there are a lot of rattlesnakes or I live that I love to climb, but it's an intense mountain. And I try like to always check in. Like I, sometimes I drive there to climb and I get a no, like a solid no. It's like, nope, today we would not like you to come up. And then one time when I ignored that, I had a really intense rattlesnake experience. I was just thinking of that. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I was asking for this. Do you find that ever with like, when you're writing about a particular space or particular, um, animal mentor or like do you ever feel like there's a yes a no or like a information that kind of comes through around that I don't write about any being that hasn't come to me and asked me there's so many experiences that are great and would make for great stories but I don't feel like I have permission to write about them they feel like really like they not I'm not the main character of them and I don't get to make them my thing usually like when I when I write about experiences I've had in nature and with places and with animals it's because they've come to me in a dream consistently or there's been some kind of synchronicity where I'm like oh you would really like to show up and be shared but there are plenty of animal experiences I've had where I'm like this is sacred and it is sacred in a way that will not be undermined by being written down because writing is a is a powerful magic it's neither bad nor good but it does concretize things so when I write I have to acknowledge that what what is being written wants to be written. There are things that don't want to be written. I love that so, so much. And I really appreciate how generously you opened up about that because I I know that it's like still disrupting that idea that we're always creating and we're always like generating. And it's it's like actually everyone sometimes that's not the case, actually. And you know, I'll go to a place sometimes, I'll bring my recorder. And I'll just know I'm not supposed to record there. Like I'm just supposed to have an have the time that I have and that's it. And we'll just be together. You know, it's it's almost like would I record my friends every time we talked? <laughs> like Oh, that's such a good way of putting it. I was gonna say, I have a question, which is like, what is the somatic feeling of that knowledge? Like what do you, how do you like register that in your body? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question. You know, I'm actually right on the precipice of kind of like deepening that exploration, especially somatically. And I'm allowing myself to be like a a big, big student 
again and like I'm in a student phase of this where I'm really really you know I don't always feel like that's the case sometimes I feel like I'm in a space where I'm like I do understand the yeses and the nos and the clarity but I think um especially regarding recording Hmm. and field recording yeah I'm in a space right now where I'm about to go for a bunch of solo trips in April and I am literally going just to um, relationship build in different ways and listen in different ways. And so that somatic um, knowing is something that I think is actually being redefined. My card for the month is like the Hierophant in reverse. So like, yeah, kind of like right on. (laughs) But what I am starting to, to pick up on, at least at this time, is that things take a while to cook. Yeah. <laughs> they take a while to cook. I'm I'm more like a a slow cooker rather than a pressure cooker. <laughs> I love if that, that makes any sense. I'm simmering and that simmering is really, really important. It's really, really important. Um and and the more that I like allow myself space to kind of just notice things, then when it really does like hit a point where it's like oh yeah, we need to engage. It's more obvious to me when that moment is. But I'll say that um, usually in my prior practice, I would just, before I ever pressed record or pulled out my stuff, I would just sit and kind of close my eyes, tune in with myself. And then I would then ask aloud, may I listen here? May I be with you here in this way? And that usually would give me, I usually hear like a voice or something, something comes through me and I'll hear a voice and the words will fall into my channel and I'll be like, okay, okay, cool. And they'll like kind of hit me to like what might be something that I should listen to or how I should be in this space or what aspect of, of this relationship is highlighted. Yeah. And that's what will kind of come through for me. But it's not always very clear. Sometimes I feel like I'm just using my discernment and saying, okay, am I in a good space here? <laughs> like, am, am I just trying to like get a, a certain sound or a certain recording out of this experience and I'm here to grab? <laughs> am I here in the dollar bin trying to get yeah. everything? <laughs> I so appreciate you offering what that process is like because I think that we're so stuck in these Eurocentric paradigms of epistemology of like how knowing happens. And it's so important to start being like knowing is fuzzy and opaque and bodily. And sometimes it feels like intuition. Sometimes it feels like madness. Like it's, I think it's so important. Like it's our birthright to have this muddy, weird, intuitive experience. Yeah. I love every single word that you just used to describe knowing. I was like, (laughs) yes continue please (laughs) yeah no I felt I felt like you you just made me feel like yeah no that's how me too like sometimes it's the crows that are like don't be here sometimes it's a voice that drops in it's so hard sometimes I don't know quite for sure yeah yeah and and I think like those of us who we tend to focus in on on 
nature. I'm just like, now I feel like I, I need new language to even describe what I'm talking about. It's so and it's, hard. Yeah. It's so frustrating. Like, please, everyone who's listening to this episode, just know that when I say nature, I am including us. It's just very hard to talk about it without othering. <sighs> I don't know. And maybe you can speak to that, Sophie, because honestly, that is so frustrating to me. I mean, I think I think it's something I really struggle with, which is like neologism. So creating new words can actually like create distance between you and a reader. And I think it's like when I went back to the ghostwriting is like, my aim is less to be perfect and fresh and more to communicate. And so sometimes we have to use words that are overdetermined and have baggage. But I think that it's always about using the words that have baggage and then trying to cushion them with an ecosystem that makes them appear differently. Yeah. So it's hard. Like, so I like try and put things around it. I mean, something I've been struggling with is, so the philosopher David Abram calls, you know, non-human kin more than human. And I've been really struggling with that. Like everyone in, in ecological spaces uses that term. And for me, it just reifies the difference. It's like more than human rather than like, you know, flowing into and out of each other mutually constituted interactive porous like um it's like it like it fetishizes nature in a way that I'm not totally comfortable with so I've been thinking about like what do I call that I don't know so yeah I'm right here with you in the unknowing I'm not sure like what is the right word I know I mean I've drawn upon like there's this word kapwa in Tagalog and Filipino and it means basically like Um, the acknowledgement of like interconnectedness yeah and so that's like a word that I'll often weave into things to kind of you know bring in one my ancestry and like the land that my family is based in and then also to kind of like get into another kind of psychology that's outside of Eurocentricism and like get into something that I don't know maybe gives me more space at least personally and then pray that others understand what the fuck I'm talking about I know I mean another thing is I always think of this literary idea to go to a white man but it's still useful Victor Schlosky this like literary theorist would say that great writers work by defamiliarizing ordinary concepts and images by making you see them in a completely different way, like like making looking at a chair from underneath it rather than from head on. And I mm-hmm. think that as artists, sometimes we're trying to take ordinary mundanity and and make it prismatic and like look at it in a different way. So I think that that's interesting. It's like, yeah, just look at it from your ancestry. Like look, put someone else in your experience so that they're forced to like empathize with a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah, and I think like part of that is like that there there are running perceptions that are dominating our awareness and how we think that we should be communicating and how that communication should land, you know, when using these words, when using like these phrases. And so there's like even that is like kind of <laughs> the perception of communication is even that is, is, is being framed in a really specific way from a really specific um, identity lens Yeah, that is not necessarily my own. 
And for the longest time, like when I would apply to grants and things like that, you know, I would always um, try to use the right language and the right like capitalization and punctuation and everything just so, so as to be accessible to these, you know, panelists and things like that. But um, in like the last couple years, I've really like departed from that. If something wants to be capitalized, I'll capitalize it. If something doesn't, it doesn't. I'll like, I have such a way of writing my grant forms. It's probably people would be like, we're are nonsensical. <laughs> but, but for me, there's a lot of collaboration with my, with the project itself and the spirit of the project itself, it has its own intelligence and sentience that I try to listen to as I'm trying to communicate what it wants communicated. And I wonder if that ever happens with you in your own art or some semblance of that, where you're listening to the intelligence of the work itself or its own voice and, um, and being available to that aspect. Well, I just want to acknowledge this amazing through line, which is I've been thinking more and more that storytelling is a hell of a lot more about listening than it is about telling. And that you seem like a person who really, from the feet up, understands that your work is about listening, not extracting and producing. (laughs) And I... That I don't encounter that a lot, so thank you. It seems like something that's really like, it's not just theoretical, it's practiced. And that's something I, I'm not perfect at. And I think for me, it's, I like to move fast. I'm not good at moving fast, but I like to move fast. And I think that listening requires slowness and patience and, you know, coaxing something out of the ground. I do think that I was not served by trying to communicate my ideas in the language of academy because they undermined what I was trying to communicate. And it took me a long time to realize that I was like cutting off my ideas at the kneecap, like kneecapping them when I would translate them. And that in fact, the goofiest language was the most authentic. So I've been, you know, we're told as writers, at least in like literature departments and academia that we're supposed to be spare and minimalist and and um, and be effective and declarative, and I try to be maximalist and body and and mix metaphors and I'm I, I like to think of like texts as being organisms as being bodies that have mouths that eat and orifices that excrete you know they intake and they outtake and in the middle there's a lot of digestive processes. And I think that I'm hoping, I'm trying to get closer to the mess that's generative and to to step away from the sterility that the culture has told me is the way we communicate. So I'm in process with that. Thank you. Mm. That is just so lovely to feel and do. I, I mean, it's it's a sensual experience, literally. Just hearing you talk about that was so good. And I was just like living in that. Um, it, was, it was kind of like a, a gelatinous kind of thing. <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I, I think that's like something that I've really appreciated about your work is that when whenever I get a chance to read what you've written, 
I, I feel like you've built such, you fleshed out so much for me to, to love and to like sense and to um, really, really be somatic and experiential about, not just to like tell me or to, to like, but like I get to live in that. And that's something that is just so joyful and precious. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think about, gosh, we live in bodies. Our work should, our art should, should engage those bodies. Like if, if you're writing, if your music, if you're, if you're, if your images aren't activating all your senses, what are they doing? Like, yeah. You know, I think as we were talking about this topic of like, of, um, academia and we were talking about the, um, the known and maybe like more subtle expectations of, of the Academy. Um, what I was thinking about was like rigor. I was thinking about rigor. I feel that rigor is often confused with, um, or maybe like conflated with the Academy and with like the, the, um, maybe constrictive energies of the Academy and I feel like that's something that um, is helpful to maybe like uh, unravel a little bit and to get into because because there is so much learning and relationship building and time and energy of like getting to love something and getting to know something. And that's where I think rigor like kind of comes in. And I would love to actually hear if you have any thoughts on this around unraveling rigor from like the academy and, 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 you know, especially like how we, we engage with science, we engage with like, you know, spirit, we engage with devotional work essentially. Yeah. Let me find this. I think it's Washington Carver. George Washington Carver says, if you love this um, scientist, if you love anything enough, it'll tell you it's secrets. And that's not what we're taught in school. Um, but it's probably what we should be taught, which is that, you know, I think rigor is, it's about excluding. Um, it's a very male concept. It's a, it's a, it's a very gendered concept. It's a, it's a, it's also very quantitative things that can be accumulated and counted. And I'm much more interested in quality of experience and, and in relationship of experience, depth, rather than, um, you know, how many <laughs> bushels of grain can I count? Um, and I think for me, rigor is death. If you push yourself hard enough, you'll die. Like, you know, we sleep for a reason. We go, everything is cyclical. You know, there are certain kinds of efforts, like we make an effort to get off the ground, but we also have to lie down to go to sleep. Like there are, there are releases, you know, if you do not release during birth, you know, a relaxed body is, is less likely to have some kind of birth trauma. And everything we do inside of hospital births creates like rigorous strength and holding on which what we really need to do is learn how so if we're in a moment where we're shifting out of extractive ecocidal cultural paradigms we we and if we're giving birth to something what we need to learn is the opposite of rigor but looseness what i'm much more interested in is agility like a lot of people say like how do you prepare for apocalypse i'm like you don't prepare Prepare pretends like you could possibly, as an ant on an anthill, see the whole system and control it. 
what you need to do is create a musculature of agility where you can dance with the unexpected. And that's not about rigor, that's about playfulness. That's about knowing when to sleep, when to conserve energy, when to reach out a hand. So that's a kind of muddy answer, but yeah, for me, rigor has always shown up in my life when I'm about to accidentally kill myself from overexertion. Mm. Yeah. Well, let me rephrase rigor in a sense. Mm-hmm. How about the idea of um, consistent, like devotional connection mm. to like your work, like rigor being more of a devotional practice mm. rather than um, a practice of of torque, yeah. a practice of like pressure and and um, and force. Yeah, I mean, I think courtship can be rigorous. Like, like, like maybe that's what I'm interested in as a kind of a rigorous play, rigorous courtship, rigorous lovemaking. What is it? Yeah. Like, it's like, like, um, George Washington Carver says, like, what does it mean to love so intensely, so devotedly that something just opens up for you and tells you everything about it? Um, you think of Barbara McClintock studying corn genomes, like she, that she didn't, she was an incredible scientist, but she also loved with enough rigor that she got some secrets that other people didn't get. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because I think that there's something about the trauma that many folks have experienced around formal education. Yeah. And the, you know, the going deep that is associated with like, okay, I've really studied this and I've really like, you know, I am so knowledgeable or whatever. And yet like, kind of shifting that shifting that into a way forward or something that's already available to us like right where we are that it's like you can be devotional and not necessarily be in a program you can be devotional and not necessarily um source all your information from like a purely data-driven lens or not i want to say data-driven pardon me let me roll that back for a second because i know that can be really really loaded and taken many different ways i'll say that it's not necessarily an intensive research study that you are involved in in order to get to know something and so like where's this play between like between or dance between like the devotion the creative like experimentation the like you know that i think rarely gets imparted in an academic environment yeah it's interesting it reminds me i was just on this panel for this um, reimagining education conference that happened where the panel's uh, name was researching the sacred (laughs) and the first thing i said was well what hubris it is to think we could research the sacred like it let it research me like what does it feel like to let yourself be researched so i also think there's this interesting moment where we open up to being researched to, to being rigorously explored and um, that, yeah, it goes both ways. You know, it, just like we, when we look at quantum physics today, we, we see that, you know, the observer changes the observed. We're also being observed. Like, what does it feel like to know that we're also part of some kind of research program? <laughs> yeah. I love that so, so much. I just felt a huge wave of joy come through me as you were saying that. I was like, yes, I want I I want to be researched. 
yeah, I'm thinking of you. I was thinking of that when you were talking about like belonging as disrupting. I was like, that was a disruptive thing to say. Like, yeah. I love that so, so much. Oh, it's so joyful to speak with you, to learn from you, to hear where you've been, what you've been doing. I know you have so many amazing projects coming out. I can't even keep track, but I I will. I would love to hear what is your next stuff that's coming out that you would like to share with all of us where we can like connect more with your amazing work. Thank you, Zanetta. And thank you. I feel like I've learned so much from you. This has been like a very important medicinal moment. Um, thank you. Mm. Um, I have a book coming out. It's called The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine from Inner Traditions. And it is available anywhere online you would like to order books from. I'm not going to tell you where to do that from. You can decide. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I have another I have a historical fiction book coming out next spring called The Madonna Secret, which is about rewilding the Gospels from Mary Magdalene's perspective. Um, yes. It will get me, quote unquote, crucified by the church for being absolutely heretical. <laughs> um, and in the meantime, I offer, I really do think that it's important to offer a lot of work for free because I'm a starving artist and the people I want to be in conversation with are also usually of the same, <laughs> same general milieu. So if you want to follow me on Instagram at Cosmogony, C-O-S-M-O-G-Y-N-Y, I try to offer a lot of free work. And if you want to go a little bit deeper and you have the funds to support me, I do offer additional work on Substack, sophiestrand.substack.com, for um, a monthly fee. And I do try and make that as juicy as possible as a thank you for the people who show up. But I also want to offer a lot for free in the meantime. Yeah. Thank you so you much. Are, you are such a generous artist. Like, you're an incredibly generous artist. Honestly, like... I, I don't know. Everyone should join your Substack. <laughs> Just you, like, you. like everyone should join because seriously, like the amount of um of healing that comes through your work and and like really supporting us and like finding um, imaginative and loving ways to be with the world, be in the world, and be in ourselves is is just so so deep. And so I'm really glad everyone needs to follow Sophie. <laughs> you likewise yeah i do i think of like we're creating some weird like mycelial web work right now of like people who are all on the same kinship you know wavelength yeah yeah i you know what i thought of today before this interview i was like if there was ever an artist that i just want to take a walk with i think it's sophie The offer stands. Come up to the Hudson Valley. Truly. I will. Let's go on a walk. I would love that. (laughs) You know, I always ask, um, I always ask one final question Mm -hmm. on the show and it's what advice would you have to your younger emerging artist self? What advice would I have to my younger emerging artist self? I would say, don't play by the rules quite as much as you think you need to, you know, that, that in fact, share, share more, like don't, don't, that art should never be a solitary. I think that's what I would say is art is not a solitary experience. It is a, it is a territory that you enter and that other beings enter and where you collaborate. And that if you never share your work and you're always trying to submit it to contests to win money, 
you're never actually going to be making very interesting work. So I would tell my, I would say, do that sooner. Realize that sooner to myself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, mm. yes, yes, yes. Thank you, Sophie, so much. Thank I you. appreciate you. I appreciate you too in this time and this space. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode of Art Witch, please consider subscribing or writing a review. Each and every little bit helps spread the word to more 